excellent. All right, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, I'm going to start reading there in verse number 14. It says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue uh, sent to them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered their manners in the wilderness, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges, about the space of four hundred and fifty years, until Samuel the prophet. Afterwards they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. When he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whoever among you feareth God, to, uh, to you is this word of salvation sent. For they that dwelt at Jerusalem and the rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he uh, saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the service today. I pray that you would be glorified and honored. Lord, I pray for your mercy and grace and for your help. I pray that your word would have free course. Lord, that it would strengthen us and draw us closer to you. I pray that you would be glorified and honored. Please, Lord, I pray that you work. If there's anyone here who does not truly know Christ as Savior, I pray that even this morning they repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, please bless and work, Lord. I pray that you would, this would have your hand upon it. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Again, a couple of weeks ago before Memorial Day, we got into this. Uh, we started Acts chapter 13, which is the, the launch of the very first missionary journey out of, an, out of Antioch there in Syria, which becomes the main church of the first century. Remember, the church at Jerusalem was, pers- was pretty much decimated by persecution that had come in. So you have this church in Antioch raised, that, that gets raised up, which is the very first Gentile church. As we saw in Acts chapter 10, we had the first Gentile convert. Shortly after that, when people began, to, those who were converted began to realize the gospel goes on to all men. Those that were already in um, uh, uh, Antioch began preaching to Gentiles. They started getting saved. Jerusalem hears about it. They send Barnabas. Barnabas begins to work there. It begins to explode. He goes and gets help. He remembered a man who ten years prior converted named Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. He goes and gets Paul. They stay there. So the two first pastors of this church in Antioch are Saul and Barnabas. The Bible says for one year they met. And what was unique about this church is they were able to meet in one location. Even though they expanded, they probably got into the thousands at this church. It's very possible based on wording that's used. So you have Saul and Barnabas. And the Bible says what they did was they preached and they taught the Word of God. That's what they were under, and they were growing. We had men under that teaching and under that preaching that began to rise to positions of leadership. We come into chapter 13. The church is growing. It's strong. It's getting fed. And now the Lord says, I'm taking a couple of you out to send out on the very first missionary journey. This will be the first time that men are sent out from a local church for the sole purpose of establishing other churches through the preaching of the gospel. And the Lord picked, I mean, you can just imagine being there, when the Lord picks Barnabas and Saul. There's no doubt, everybody in the church is like, all right, just pick any two but Barnabas and Saul. But that's who the Lord picks. And so the church, the church, they lay hands on them, they send them out. There's no magical power in laying out of hands. There isn't. It was symbolic of their authority, their blessing. We're sending them out. This is right. Things should be done out of a local church. This is how this is done. And so they have the direction of, of God's leading to send them out. The church sends them out, and they head out. Then we got into the first part of the missionary journey. They head into Cyprus. They, they would know Cyprus well. Well, Barnabas would, because that's Barnabas' home area. They head there, and we see it isn't... It isn't too much into this. They face opposition. And, and, and they, had, they get to the capital there in Cyprus. And, and the governor himself of, that, of Cyprus hears of their message of these men. And so he asks for an audience with him. But one of his counselors, who was this demonic man, who hears about it. And he tries to hinder him from trusting Christ. And of course, we know Paul, the Lord strikes him blind. And, and, and the governor ends up repenting and places his faith in Christ. So it's pretty incredible. And then what we saw last time is they left. Uh, um, they left Cyprus. They head over to the, the mainland there. They arrived in Perga in the region of Pamphylia. Why they're there, we don't really have any record of Paul necessarily preaching there. That's, that's because many believe it's at this time that Paul was pretty sick. He references that going in, into different epistles of where he got really sick uh, on this journey. So this is likely when it was. It's thought that he had malaria, um, coastal region, because he's going to head up to highlands. So many people think that's what he was suffering from at the time. And so he heads up and he chooses a place to go to, which is Antioch of Pisidia. Remember, I mentioned before, there's about 14 cities at this time in the Roman Empire by the name of Antioch. You have Antioch of Syria, that's where the main churches. This is Antioch of Pisidia, where Paul and Barnabas are going to travel to. John Mark has went back. So they leave Perga and Pamphylia, they head into Pisidia. Both of those are regions, all right, like giant counties, if you will. 
All right? Those are regions which make up the area of Galatia. And so they were, they were in Pamphylia, in Perga, in that town in Pamphylia. They're traveling into Pisidia, into the city of Antioch in Pisidia. And those regions are two of the regions that make up Galatia. Paul always chose primary areas to begin to preach and establish a church. Pisidia does make sense. It was, it was not the capital, but it was the administrative center for all of Galatia. It also had a very large Jewish population, which Paul would know well. And, and it's amazing that he chose to go there because, as I mentioned last time, the travel to Pisidia was treacherous. It was, it was, it was a very rough, difficult journey. It's amazing how Paul did not determine the will of God by what was easiest. Don't we do that often? Well, if God just puts it in my lap, then I'll know that's the will of God. If he doesn't, I'm not going to work for anything here. No, he, he, did, he knew that's where the Lord wanted him. He put it on his heart, and he went there. And many people believe when he's going through Corinthians and talking about all the trials and struggles that he's faced in his travels, many people think that many of those things he described were what took part on this portion of his journey. So he gets up to Pisidia. And we got to that point last time in Scripture, and he heads to the synagogue that Sabbath day. He arrives... And he's going to begin preaching. He's going to do two things here. We started this. Again, this is a part two. We started it last week, and I'll finish it up today. What he does is, we see Paul does two crucial things. He's going to give them a reason to listen to him when he starts to preach. And then he's going to give them, secondly, a reason to believe. That's exactly what we do when we're presenting the gospel. And we have a responsibility with this. Every single one of us do that. We present the gospel in a fashion that, that, that's going to work, that will be effective. By giving people a reason to listen. And then following up with a reason to believe this. That's exactly what he's getting ready to do. And so as he goes in, they follow the normal procedure on the Sabbath day, which is still pretty common to this day in synagogues, where they start off by reading of Deuteronomy chapter 6. They then have prayers. They will then read um, from the Pentateuch, the first, that's the first five books, and then the prophets. They go through those two sections every seven years. After that is complete, uh, then somebody will, will teach or preach at that time. It was common if they did have somebody, a visitor who was present, who was uh, um, uh, uh, knowledgeable and could teach and preach, they would ask him. And so that, that's why they asked Paul here, hey, why, why don't you go ahead and preach this day? It's even possible, I don't know that he did, I was thinking about this though when I was preparing this message, it's possible, again, I'm not certain, that Paul still wore some of his garments that demonstrated he was a rabbi, because every time he went into a synagogue, he was asked to preach. And so Paul stands up, and it's interesting what he does. He doesn't start right off with Jesus Christ. He wants them to give them a reason to listen to him, not a reason to shut him down. He doesn't start off attacking by all that's wrong with Judaism of the day, how they went off on tradition, how they've left the Word of God. He doesn't start that way. He's going to start off with what is common ground and what is right. He gives them a reason to listen to him. We talked. That was right where we finished up last week. Um, with giving people a, a reason to listen. And, and, and by the way, with Paul, let me bring this up too. Um, I think I mentioned last time, I'm not sure. What I love about Paul's preaching is rarely, not rarely, never is he the center of his sermon, neither should you be if you're a preacher. Every now and then he'll use a personal illustration, but that's rare. God is always the center of attention. There is something horribly wrong with preaching when the guy preaching is the center of attention, and it's not the Word of God. When it's all about him in the name of God, let me tell you what the Lord did, and it's just all about him. That's not how this goes. 
I mean, you look through, you look through his sermon here that, we, that we've already read over and over. It's all about God. Verse 17, God chose. Verse 18, God suffered. Verse 19, God destroyed and God divided. Uh, God gave in verse 20, uh, 20 and 21. Verse 22, God removed. God raised. God gave testimony. On and on and on. I can go on and on and on. It was all about what God did. And so, he's going to continue here. He's going to give them a reason to listen. So what he starts off with, and this is where we pick up from today. He starts off with the past. He is setting a foundation. Listen, I, I do know the Word of God. I know what I'm talking about. And so he goes right to the past. He's going to tie that past in with prophecy. Again, I gave this out last week. I, I'm not preaching Paul's outline for this, but his outline is pretty simple. He gave, I put it in peace. Past, he's going to cover. Then he's going to cover prophecy. And then he goes into propitiation. The answer is Christ. All right? But he starts off with the common ground they all would know. He talks about God choosing their father Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. How they ended up in the land of Egypt for all, the year, all those years, but God brought them out with great power. Referring, of course, to the plagues that hit, the crossing of the Red Sea. Remember, we just have a snippet of his message. That's what we have. We have the basic outline given to us. This isn't every word that he spoke to them. So he dives into how God brought them out of Egypt and how they spent the next 40 years in the wilderness and how all the grace God showed them during that time, even though there was a rebellious spirit at times, but God suffered, he, 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 he still showed mercy and grace. And then once coming out, how he, he, they entered into the promised land, destroying the seven nations, which you have listed in Deuteronomy 7.1. The Hittites, the uh, Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then once they, the, then the land was divided by Lot at that time, then they had the time of the judges. Where there was no king, it was a theocracy, God was in control, but God would, would, would raise up an individual to basically administer the affairs, usually starting with some means of deliverance out of enemies. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, it gets into the repeated cycle that Israel was in. It almost gets frustrating when you read it. Because they'll, they'll, they'll have a time when they're close to God, but then they begin to drift and they get more worldly. And then God sends a chastisement upon them. They usually end up in bondage to another nation. And finally they want to repent and get right with God. And so God raises up a deliverer. And the whole cycle then starts over again. But so often we do that too in our own life. And so he refers to the time of the judges. And what he's trying to get to here is David. Because from David, he's going to launch into prophecy to demonstrate exactly who Jesus Christ is. But he does cover it. He finishes up, of course, with Samuel, who was the last of the judges. Samuel is the last of the time of the judges. It finishes up with him. And it's at that time that the people all of a sudden wanted a king. And so the king, first king they chose was Saul. Of course, God wanted a king for them that would obey his will. Saul would not. Saul was very self-willed. Um, Saul did what he wanted to do, and what he thought was best, regardless of God's word. He refers to, in verse 22 of our text, how God had removed him. That, that's either speaking of his death, or more than likely, of course, uh, dealing with uh, Amalekites when, when Saul had disobeyed God, when he was destroyed. Listen, the king, everybody, you, you take them all out. And it's amazing, Saul's justification... Even though he heard God's word, you're destroyed them all. You're to head in there. All of them have to go. But Saul saved, you know, the best sheep. Um, you know, he saved. He said, listen, and, and, he, and he heads, as he's heading back in, Samuel realizes what has happened, that he did not obey God. 
And so Samuel approaches him, and this is getting into what 1 Samuel chapter 16, and he says, why do I hear sheep? What am, I, what am I hearing right now? What's taking place? He goes, oh no, it's okay. I've saved him so we can offer him for our sacrifice. He tried, to aspire, uh, he tried to attach a spiritual reason to his disobedience. We do that all the time. God won't mind because I'm going to use this for a spiritual reason. We can look for justifications for our actions and use God as the justifier. And of course, God rejected him that day. But then, now back into our text, it says this. It says that when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will, which is what David did. And so then he says, the next king we had was David. And of course, he's one of the heroes, of course, one of our heroes too, but in the Jewish community, I mean, David is one of the heroes. There's three or four primary men, and David is certainly one of them. And of course, we know David was not a perfect man. And that's one thing that's amazing about the, about the Word of God. It's one of the proofs that this is the Word of God, how it also shows the moral failures. It doesn't try and cover anything up. It doesn't try and hide it. He certainly wasn't perfect. We know David had moral pharaoh, but that did not change that he was a man after God's own heart. It showed that, obviously, he wasn't perfect. He had flesh. He was going to sin just like any man would. Uh, but even in 1 Kings chapter 3, when Solomon comes on the scene, when God is talking about David, now David's dead by this time. His life is finished. But he tells Solomon, I want you to follow me like your father David did. That's what I want. David didn't say, we always see, often see David's repentance in his, whenever he did some, whether it was whether it was with Bathsheba or in the numbering of the people, you can see the repentance coming into place. And God showed grace in his life. God never defined him by one event. We tend to do that. We tend to define people by one event. God didn't do that. From David now... What Paul does is he transitions to the main thrust of his message. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. He says this. He says, of this, verse 23. Now, could you imagine being there? You're in this synagogue. You have really, you have no idea where this man's quite going with the message right now. You agree with everything he's saying, though. There's nothing here anybody would disagree with. All right? And now he refers to he starts to get into some prophecy. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior. I just wonder if Paul didn't pause right there. And then said, Jesus. Because that would have been, wait, what did he just say? We've heard of this man. No doubt some of them were probably in Jerusalem, saw some of his miracles during the travels. They all knew of him. Did he actually just say what I think he said? But right now, so far, he has given them a reason to listen. But now he better give them a reason to believe, or he's going to lose them. That's exactly what he's going to do. He is going to use now with great wisdom, he is going to use the Old Testament itself in prophecy to demonstrate 
that the Messiah was in fact here, that it was in fact Jesus Christ. He knows as soon as he said the name Christ, there's objections. There's issues. A wall is starting to go up, and he has to prevent that wall from going up. So he's going to go to a prophecy to show who Christ is, that he is in fact the Messiah. And in doing so, as we look at what he does, he fights off the two strongest arguments that the Jews had against Christ. The wisdom Paul uses is incredible. He's going to, as we go through this, notice how he fights off two strong arguments. The argument that, that, one, our leaders didn't recognize him. Why didn't they know? If he was the Messiah, then why didn't our leadership know he was the Messiah? And two, he died. They crucified him. So he's going to go right at those objections. The first prophecy that he hits, and by the way, as you can see, he does go to prophecy. If you look at, what is it, in verse... Over and over, over and over. Verse 25, the word fulfilled. Verse 27, the word fulfilled. Verse 29, the word fulfilled. Verse 33, fulfilled. Verse 35, when it talks about there, another psalm that's dealing with prophecy. He's going right into prophecy, demonstrating who Christ is. So now what he wants to do is he's, he's established what he said. How he believes the scripture. He knows exactly how what God has done. And he's trying to show that everything in all of their own history was pointing to this time of Jesus Christ. He wants them to see that. And remember, Paul, this is the pattern Paul established whenever he started a new church. He would edit in the synagogue. You always had those who would convert. You would have those right there that they would hear Paul. And they're like, man, he's right. So the first prophecy he goes to, look over in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. This is the very first prophecy that Paul goes to, and it makes sense. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messengers of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So what God, in prophecy, there was a prophecy that was very well understood, that right before the Messiah arrived, God would send a forerunner, somebody to prepare the way. And so Paul goes right to that here in our text. Look at what he says. He says, um, when John, verse 24, had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. Behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. So he goes right to John. And this makes sense because one thing the people of Israel did believe was John was a prophet. So he goes back to common ground once again. He says, listen, think about this prophecy. Think about this. I know right now you're shocked at what I just said, that the Messiah is in fact Jesus Christ. But listen to me. Think about it. We have the forerunner in place like Malachi said would take place. We have the man here who you all recognize as a prophet. He himself proclaimed over and over, I'm not he. But the time is now there's one cometh after me whose shoes I'm not worthy to, uh, uh, to, unle- to unloose. He's letting him know that is, in fact, Jesus Christ. So he goes to John who preached this message of repentance, to repent, to prepare, because the Messiah is here. And Paul stressed. Look what he says there. He said in verse 26, 
men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham. And whosoever among you feareth God, to you is this word of salvation sent. Now, keep in mind, Paul knows, he knows exactly what he's doing. Just like the disciples during the three years with ministry with Christ when they gave their life for him, they thought a kingdom would come immediately. When the Messiah arrived, what they didn't see was this time of this church age right now. It was hidden. But Paul is going to demonstrate, wait, here's some things we didn't understand. I'm going to show you how that from Scripture, not only do we have the forerunner, but that he had to die. And that he had to be raised from the dead. And that this deals with our very salvation. I wonder, remember, we just have a snippet of what he said, but part of me doesn't wonder if he did not proclaim John's words when he finally did meet Christ and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. So he continues. And he's going to answer those objections. How the leaders did not recognize him and the fact that he died. I wonder if he didn't go to... We know he's going to reference Isaiah chapter 53 here later. But I wonder if he didn't go to Isaiah 53.3. Dealing with Christ being despised and rejected. Because that's exactly what he was. He was despised and rejected. And of course that second objection that he's going to deal with is the fact that he was killed. He's going to masterfully use the Old Testament, much like Peter did in Acts chapter 2, by the way. Very similar. Much like Peter did in Acts chapter 2 to demonstrate who Christ was from the Old Testament. He's going to show how the death and suffering of the Messiah was prophesied. It was a must. It had to happen. And it's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And how the problem was, was a lack of understanding. Look at verse 27. He says, For they that dwell at Jerusalem and the rulers... Because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, like they just did. They have fulfilled them in condemning him. He said, listen, the problem here was they didn't understand. But they were fulfilling exactly what the Old Testament said had to take place. What he's doing is, he's giving them right now a strong reason to believe. And at the same moment, you actually have God's Holy Spirit working on the heart, telling them, yes, this is true. Listen to him, connect these dots. Listen to this. It was prophesied. You did have the forerunner. It is in the Old Testament that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would be raised from the dead. He says, listen, there was a lack of understanding. Did not Christ talk about this during his ministry in verses like John chapter 5 and verse 39 when he told them to go to the scriptures and them you think that you have eternal life but they are they that testify of me? How they lacked understanding of scripture. Listen, it's important when you come to the Bible that you approach it not with some false presuppositions but with a humble heart recognizing this is the word of God. Ready to hear. Not just to get gain for the sake of knowledge and pride. But we certainly need... It's a spiritual book. They missed him because they didn't understand what they were reading, as Paul said. Too much sin, too much hypocrisy, too much pride involved. And I guarantee you, sin will hinder your understanding of the Word of God. Paul told them in verse 27, listen, this fulfilled Scripture, though. This was all part of God's plan. He said, you know, he's thinking about this. God's plan was much greater and broader than what we ever realized. But it's all there still in the Old Testament. 
how, we, how Christ completely fulfilled the prophecy in, uh, of Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 28, he points this out. He says, he tells us, think about this. He said, and they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. He says, think about this. He says, he's trying to show how God was in control of all of this, how this was about fulfilling scripture. He said, he's basically, he said, how many times have you had the Roman government declare the man innocent, yet they still kill him? He's trying to get to see God's behind all of this. We have a man who's been declared innocent. There's no cause of death in him whatsoever, yet he's still killed. He's trying to say it wasn't because he did any crime. It's because it was fulfilling Scripture. <clears throat> Paul pointed out God was in control of all of this. And he says this in verse 29. Now get this. This will grab him. And when they, and when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, the him being Jesus, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. So, what verses would Paul be referring to here? Paul's talking about his death on the cross. I mean, there's several that, there's several that come to mind. Verses like Psalm 109.25. Maybe he was quoting this. Maybe he went to verse after verse after verse, showing how what happened on the cross, Christ fulfilled right there. How it says there, I become a reproach to them that when they see me, they wag their heads. How Paul was someone, I, I talked with Matthew myself, and Matthew told me that as they passed by, they reviled him, wagging their heads. Maybe then he quoted Psalm 22.17, Psalm 22, how, how the people just stood looking at him, as, as Luke told him about in Luke 20, as we see in Luke 23.34, or in Psalm 22.18, how they parted my garments among them and they cast lots upon my vesture. How John told him about that taking place. How they said, let us not rend it, but, but cast lots for his garments. And maybe he went to the next verse. He went to Psalm 69, 21, where it says, And in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. How Matthew told him, yes, they gave him vinegar to drink, uh, uh, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Or Psalm 22, 1, which, which sings out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And him telling him that's exactly what Christ cried from the cross. Or in Psalm 31, 5, when it says, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Uh, that's exactly what Luke told him about, how into thy hands I, I commit my spirit. Or in Psalm 34, 20, where it says, where not one of his bones was broken. How John told him it was true. When they came to Christ, they saw he was already dead, and they did not break one of his bones. Or Zechariah, when the prophet said, they will look on me in whom they have pierced. And he talked about how the Roman soldiers pierced him. Him giving verse after verse how we fulfilled every single scripture that dealt with the suffering, crucifixion, and death of the Messiah. Think about this. You're a Jew. You're there. You're waiting for a Messiah to come. Rome is in control. You believe it's close. You have heard about a forerunner who's there named John the Baptist who preached with power and authority, who even the leaders themselves would not dare question. And that how he did proclaim, he's here. How it was, in fact, this man Christ. But they didn't understand. Why didn't our leaders understand? He's saying, listen to me. That's how it had to be. He had to die. This was going to be the, and he's going to get into that, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. <clears throat> but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to make sure they know he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead on the third day. Let's look at these verses right here. Verse 29. <clears throat> He talks about how they took him down from the tree, laid him in a sepulcher. Verse 30, here it is. But God raised him from the dead. 
He's going to establish through witnesses and through uh, the Old Testament this is what had to be. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who uh, are his witnesses unto this people. And we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers. He's saying, listen, this is great stuff. It's been fulfilled. This is the Messiah. He said, God hath fulfilled the same un, un, unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now uh, no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David, wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. How that David, verse 36, did see corruption, but God raised up Christ. So think what he's doing right now. He said, listen, it is true that he died, but he had to die. But God raised him from the dead. He defeated death. And this fulfilled scripture. He tells of the witnesses that saw him. He said, listen, there's hundreds that saw him. Think about it. There is no body. There's just an empty tomb, he tells him. He rose again from the dead. We have witnesses to this end. And he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He said, listen, but this is all, this is all prophetic. He goes to Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. It's an interesting psalm that he picks, but it's perfect. He, he goes to Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Um, what verse was that in here? Um, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten, begotten thee, in verse 33. He quotes from Psalm 2 as a prophetic verse about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, you might say, well, that's an interesting verse to use. It's, it's perfect for it. It's not the only one he's going to use, but it's the perfect one to start off with. Why? It's because this is what proved he was, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, and look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. Now get this. By the resurrection from the dead. He is telling him what confirmed it for all of us. That he was in fact the begotten of the Father like is talked about in Psalm 2. Is in fact the resurrection. This is what shows us. This is the ultimate proof. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. They did kill him. They did nail him to a tree. But we have prophecies talking about it. But he didn't stay dead. He was in fact the Son of God. He goes on from there. He doesn't just stay there. Knowing this proved it. He goes to Isaiah 55, 3 about the sure mercies of David. Tying that in with Psalm chapter 16. He goes to Psalm 16 to show Christ's resurrection still in prophecy. And look at Psalm 16. Let me read those verses real quick. Psalm chapter 16. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth my flesh. Also shall rest in hope, for thou, wilt not, uh, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Let's stop right there. This is, of course, coming from David. Now they'd always thought that this section here was talking about David. 
He said, no, we had it wrong. He goes, think about this. David is dead right now, and they know it. He's seen corruption. He's saying, this is not talking about David. This is talking about those somebody who clearly died, but did not see corruption, was given life. He says, does this fit David? He goes, think about it. This isn't talking about David. We've, he said, I've already established for you that he had to suffer and he had to die. But it's through a resurrection that he's going to prove to us that, in fact, he is the begotten of the Father. He is the Son of God. And he said, now let's go to Psalm 16. Here it is in prophecy. It's not talking about David. He's dead. He saw corruption. But he raised him up, proving, in fact, that he was the Son of God. Raised him up to die no more. So they're sitting there. He's trying to give them now a reason to believe. To say, listen to me. This is truth. He said, we've been reading through for years now. Decades. Going on here in these synagogues. Reading through the Pentateuch. Reading through the prophets. All of us waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And he says, I'm telling you, he's been here. He's here. He's going to continue on how he is the propitiation. How he is the answer. His sermon isn't done yet right here. We're, we'll, get, we'll get to the rest of his sermon next week. But right now what he has done with using, with using prophecy is he's given them a reason to believe. You can see right there how those men, uh, the, those men and those women, they're all challenges they heard Paul. Thank you, wait. Seen it in Scripture. I mean, thinking about chapters like Isaiah 53. Think about what it said there. All, all the prophecies he gave on the suffering of Christ on the cross. And all that took place. Not just the suffering. How it's all there. And it all happened in this man Christ. And how more than likely all of them had already heard the rumor that Christ had raised from the dead. And here's Paul telling And Paul could tell listen, I met him. Let me tell you how I got saved. How I was persecuting and it clicked. He is the Messiah. How he goes on and down for the past 10 years, now 12 years, I've, 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 I have dove into this. It's throughout Scripture. Everything points to Christ. And we'll see. There are those who will believe. So what Paul did here was he gave them a reason to listen and he gave them a reason to believe. He's going to go on in his message to show how what Christ did through his suffering on the cross and through his resurrection opens the door for a justification before God, for sins to be removed. And listen, that is the only answer. The only answer for you to be able to possibly stand justified before God is not based on what church you're a member of. It's not based on how good you are. It's not based on you trying to follow the Ten Commandments. It is solely in what Jesus Christ did. Why put that off? Why not come to him in repentance and faith? He is what it's all about. Remove all the cloudiness of your thoughts and all, all the different things that come in to try and steal away the truth that is so evident before you. The man who barely moved from such a tiny geographical area who has completely changed the world, who even historians of the day, who are not even Christians, talk of his resurrection. He changed the world. Why doubt it? Salvation is only in Him. And that's what Paul's going to go with us. Paul's going to show, listen, 
why that took place is so that you could have your sins removed. Because you're going to die and face God in judgment. And the only remedy for it is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And you cannot mix your faith with Christ and whatever else you choose to believe. That's not how this is going to work. Matter of fact, it's these very churches in Galatia that would end up changing the gospel itself by adding to it. And Paul said, no, you left it. Salvation is in Christ alone. Repentance and faith in Him alone. Don't put it off anymore. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when your heart is just going to be hardened even more. And you just choose to reject. And you will regret that for an eternity. Being so close but allowing foolish thoughts to hinder you from coming to Christ. He is the answer. He is the Messiah. You have, just, just like here in Acts chapter 13, one of the most brilliant minds that ever lived in Paul demonstrating to, to this community and this synagogue, which would have been a fairly large synagogue, how in fact Jesus was the Messiah. There are those who are going to choose to reject, even though they hear it all. And there's, there's not one of them who can make an argument against Paul. Remember, remember when Paul first heard the gospel, as we went through this? Who was the man preaching when Paul first heard the gospel? Stephen. Remember what it said about him when Stephen presented the gospel? He couldn't answer. He didn't have an answer. The same thing right now here in the synagogue. They can't poke a hole in what Paul was saying. They can't. They still have the choice to choose to reject, but they can't base it on truth. That rejection will be based simply because men choose to love darkness rather than light. With heads bowed and eyes closed.